You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Metro Media Radio News. One thing of interest to Americans in the Laos fighting is the role of American fighting men. Jim Laurie reports on this from Quang Tri, South Vietnam. There's no question about it, said one Army captain. If we've got one American airman shot down on the ground in Laos, we're going to do everything we can to get him out, even if it takes up to 100 combat troops to do it. A summation of the ground combat role of American troops in Laos. The White House may call it protective encirclement, to the men here, it's an integral part of search and rescue operations. Each day for the last three weeks, an average of 10 helicopters have been shot down by red anti-aircraft fire. As each one goes down, a medevac chopper flies out to rescue crewmen. A bigger chopper tries to recover the downed helicopter. Dozens of gunships and combat troops accompany to keep the fire heavy while the rescue operation goes on. It may take up to two hours, and it may take up to a hundred men in Laos. Jim Laurie, Quantry, Vietnam. And this is Mike Dewey. You've been listening to Metro Media Radio News with Mike Dewey reporting from Washington. During the Vietnam War, the U.S. was also bombing Laos. Most Americans did not know it, but for nine years, the U.S. Air Force targeted communist forces in neighboring Laos, which had occupied the Ho Chi Minh Trail Corridor for supplies. To do that, the U.S. dropped more bombs on this country than it did in all of World War II. How many bombs were dropped in those in those years between 1964 and 1973? Two million tons of bombs were dropped. So during that nine-year period, um, a plane load of bombs were dropped every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. Over 50,000 people were killed during that period. And then after the last bombs were dropped in 1973, 20,000 people have died since then. So that's been 43 years right. since all this ended. Right. And there's still bombs in the ground. Right people are still being killed and injured. Among the worst hit, the Plain of Jars. Archaeologists believe 2,000 years ago, these stone jars were created to store wine or water or bodies of the dead. All the spots that was hit, in Laos by the U.S. bombs. Where does this one rate? As it's the top, Lane of Jars, Siang Kuang area is the most massively bombed area in, in all of Laos. One of the most massive bombing campaigns the U.S. ever conducted. Six decades ago, this country fell into civil war. And as the fighting raged next door in Vietnam, your neighbors and foreign powers, including the United States, intervened here. At the time, the U.S. government did not acknowledge America's role 
There was a secret war. And for years, the American people did not know. It made Laos per person the most heavily bombed country in history. As one Laotian said, the bombs fell like rain. So in terms of numbers, about two million tons of bombs were dropped on Laos from 1964 to 1973. They're not hard to find. In the tourist spots, they put these little signs up telling people that these bomb craters happened at that time. More than 30% of those bombs in those years did not explode. Not like landmines or a different type of weapon, cluster munitions were meant to explode upon impact. And so if they're hit with light force or if there's heat involved, um, they will explode. Hello, later. Our guide is Chanaba Kinvosa. What do you think? Sabaidi! <laughs> what does that mean? Sabaidi is hello! Who as a child fled Laos as a refugee and grew up in America. Don't Feel the air? So fresh. She founded an organization that deals with the legacy of America's secret war in Laos. 40% of those who have been wounded or killed are children. Are children. Why is that? They're small little bomblets, right? They're the size of a tennis ball. And children will pick them up and see them as, as toy-like. Oftentimes, we'll play with them and tamper with them, and they'll explode. This is from the Bombi. Right over here? Was the bomb right, right over here? No, it was right here. Okay. It was right here. They were playing with it right here. With two boys, must have been touching it or something, and it went off, um, causing the most injury, obviously, to the two boys that were sitting here. As you can see, um, their blood splatters are still all over uh, this bench. The one that's in the hospital was sitting right here. Uh, so that's yeah. his blood. Yeah. So in this village, they have found hundreds of these bombs, but they just didn't get this one. Are you? How's he doing, huh? Is he better? So he lost all this part? He says he's left-handed. Did you did you know that this this bombs possibly could possibly blow up? Yeah, he said what do you know about these bombs? Do you know where they came from all those years ago? And oh, he says Bengal, the Americans. Yeah, yeah. So you you know more about these bombs than any of your other friends now. You'll be their teacher. Thank you. Thank you very much. Every day, teams are in the fields, searching for the bombs. We joined one of them. All right, so, so about a month, you found 147 little cluster bombs and 154 of a different kind. And this is about the same level of danger as it was before. Yes. So you've got another, just until September, this will be over. First of all, please don't uh, anywhere that you like. Please follow the leader. So they're going to take us out here to the field where they're going to search for these bombies, you know, these little tiny cluster bombs. 
and anything else they can find as well. Once they find them under, under the ground, they'll detonate them, blow them up before they dig them up. enough is being done right now to, to clear all of these bombs out of the ground? It's not enough, because it's not enough. One third of the whole country is still contaminated by cluster bomb. So it would take us probably uh, a century. You think it'll take a hundred years before it's all cleared? I would say yes, because two thirds of the country is mountainous. That, that is the area uh, which would be most difficult to, to clear all these bombs. Remnants of war continue to shatter lives here in Laos. The wounds, a missing leg or arm, last a lifetime. What do you think people think generally about America because these bombs were dropped by the United States? Of course I'm angry, he told me, that the Americans dropped the bombs on our farmland, but I have forgiven them. I think for the older generation, uh, there's still a memory of what happened here and, uh, and what the U.S. did here in terms of the bombings. With the younger generation, you know, that, that memory and that history is no longer a part of their life. Given our history here, I believe that the United States has a moral obligation to help Laos heal. And even as we continue to deal with the past, our new partnership is focused on the future. Barack Obama is the first sitting American president to ever visit this country. He is hoping to turn a page. Most of those we met here were born well after the secret war ended. We were welcomed everywhere we went. From above, you can see how seemingly untouched and beautiful Laos is. What you cannot see are the bombs still beneath the ground. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this is a show that's going to be one of the low points of the Nixon years uh, prior to Watergate. This is the um, after working to Vietnam on Vietnamization to turn the war over to the South Vietnamese Army, and for us to become less involved. On top of which, Congress, after we had uh, gone in some into Cambodia, had passed a law that forbade. Uh, funding of our troops serving across the line in any of the other countries other than South Vietnam. Uh, we were turning it over to the South Vietnamese to run an operation. We, we were going to provide some air support, as we do with a lot of helicopters, but in Laos, which is with, uh, the upper end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But I included this opening piece by ABC News because Laos had been a part of this war the whole time. And a lot of blame uh, or a lot of innuendo is I've always made toward President Nixon for going over the line. But the truth is this had gone on since 1964 and it had been started a secret war in Laos by the Democrats 
They were in charge in 1964, the breast and the brightest. So, you know, let's be careful about who we blame for what uh, in Vietnam and in Laos. But the bombs that we dropped over this long period of time, nine years, are still there and uh, still blowing up at times. And it shows you the price that gets paid for war and the price that the Laotian people had paid uh, for this battle that started out as their own civil war between a brother and a half-brother for control of the country uh, as the communists, you know, they were working on that domino theory that, that was very, very real. A lot of people act as though that was not a real uh, thing, that if one communist country fell, then the next and the next and the next and the dominoes across Southeast Asia. That's what we were drawing that line on. And, and we had yet to go and meet with the Chinese. And there had always been a concern, and you can hear Lyndon Johnson uh, talk about that in some of our earlier shows, that he had a fear of, you know, would the Chinese come in on the side of the North Vietnamese? So that part of the game hasn't changed yet, and I don't want to run too far ahead of our narrative now, but um, that is what President Nixon and Henry Kissinger are working on. The Laos campaign was a failure, and the South Vietnamese uh, were, got hammered there. And, uh, you know, as with anything with President Nixon, when, when something he does doesn't work, you'll hear these historians, these hippie historians will come out, and they'll try to make a case that, you know, that he's lied about this, he's lied about that, he's misleading the people he didn't deal with you honestly. You know, Bob Woodward has got uh, a book out with Alexander Butterfield claiming, oh, there's this memo where he's, you know, where he, he's saying that bombing doesn't work, and he talks to Dan Rather, and he, and, he, and he lies about it. Well, you know, it's a war, folks. You know, you don't get on TV and announce to the enemy what you're doing. Bob Woodward's in, it's just, it's just he's, he's either stupid or intentionally uh, trying to make a case out of something that is not there with that book. But, but this was done again in a podcast documentary, and we're going to talk a little bit about that podcast and some of their other distortions called Nixon and War. But first... We're going to look at the campaign in Laos. Uh, it was called Operation Lamsom 719. Uh, the Americans, that was the South Vietnamese name for the operation. The Americans call it Dewey Canyon 2. Uh, but this is our operation in Laos, and it doesn't go well. On January 22, 1971, the Vietnamese communists hit Phnom Penh for the first time, destroying ammunition dumps and oil supplies, and wiping out the Cambodian Air Force. Within days, help arrived. Twenty American soldiers flew in from Vietnam, carrying guns but wearing civilian clothes. <laughs> They formed what they called the Military Equipment uh, Delivery Team, MEDTC. By the time they got themselves organized, they replaced my little group of myself and uh, four people with a general and about 113 people. And, and in effect, they took over most of the military activities for the FANC headquarters, which, which was what I hoped to preclude. Yankees running all over the place and making all decisions 
and uh, uh, providing all guidance. Only American air power and funds kept Lon Nol's army from defeat. No Americans were dying in Cambodia as they still were in Vietnam. For the moment, Congress went along with Nixon's war. Now let's look at Cambodia. We've made a conscious decision not to send American troops in. There are no American uh, combat troops in Cambodia. There are no American combat advisors in Cambodia. There will be no American combat troops or advisors in Cambodia. We will aid Cambodia. Cambodia is the Nixon doctrine in its purest form. Vietnam was in violation of the Nixon doctrine because in Cambodia what we are doing is helping the Cambodians to help themselves. The doctrine was also tested against the Ho Chi Minh Trail in southern Laos. In early 1971, South Vietnamese forces, using American equipment, moved against the communist supply routes. The Laotian government was not informed in advance. The Prime Minister said to me, I don't know anything about this either. I only just learned about the operation from the American ambassador. I answered, this is quite serious. He replied, yes, quite serious. Military operations are being conducted in our country. It is very serious. But what can we do? They have taken the decision. All we can do is lodge a protest. That is all. The United States planned the invasion and gave it air and artillery support. But without American combat troops beside them, the South Vietnamese forces fled in disarray. They took 3,000 casualties in the first week alone. In Laos, the Nixon Doctrine had failed. The plan is to send an armored South Vietnamese force speeding down Highway 9 to the village of Chapone, which is believed to be a major enemy supply depot. At the same time, U.S. helicopter units, including Major Bob Cluel and his men, will insert Arvin ground troops north and south of the highway to act as a blocking force and destroy any additional supply caches in the immediate area. In total, 12,000 South Vietnamese are heading into Laos. And for the first time since American forces took over primary military leadership, they will do all of the ground fighting. A congressional amendment enacted a month earlier prohibits U.S. ground forces from setting foot outside South Vietnam. Lam San 719 will be the first real test of whether or not the South Vietnamese military is prepared to lead the war by themselves. Right as we're about to take off, a couple of my pilots ask, who the hell are we supposed to talk to on the ground in Laos, since none of the Arvin were dropping off there speak English? I tell them not to worry, because we've got translators standing by. But in the back of my mind, I have a terrible feeling that we're heading into trouble. Everybody is broken out in Laos. 
once again today after Four cameramen are reported missing in Laos tonight, and it's believed that they were killed in a helicopter crash. One of the journalists killed covering Lam San 719 is a friend of UPI correspondent Joe Galloway. Galloway was last in Vietnam during the Ya Drang Valley battles, almost six years earlier. His boss now requests he return to take the place of his friend. Galloway arrives during the second week of Lam San 719 and finds the military situation even grimmer than he expected. Nearly 60,000 NVA are massing to launch vicious assaults against the 12,000 South Vietnamese. The armored column is stopped only halfway to Japan. Finally, during the third week of fighting, a quick decision is made to break west and establish three landing zones known as Lolo, Liz, and Sophia. With the armored column still bogged down on Highway 9, Arvin and U.S. commanders planned to helicopter approximately 1,600 Arvin ground troops into these LZs in the hopes that they can jumpstart the advance to Japan. Major Bob Cluel and his company are among the 30 choppers selected for the missions at LZ Lolo. And Chalk 6 has taken fire. Jesus, man, what the hell is going on out there? Over the radios, we can hear the choppers ahead of us. They're taking heavy fire from all over the LZ. I look down and it's like the terrain is moving beneath us. There must be several hundred enemy soldiers, enemy heavily, soldiers camouflaged, heavily camouflaged, all moving, all moving together like a carpet, you know. And then as we got close to the next zone, began as a mass to shoot at the helicopter. Within minutes, two of my choppers are shot down. Over the radio, I can hear our pilots calling for rescue, but nobody can get down to get them. Cluel and the remaining choppers are determined to rescue the eight downed Americans from their company. For over an hour, they circle the LZ. With their fuel and ammunition nearly depleted, they are finally forced to head back to the base at Quezon. No, uh, when we get to Quezon, everyone's exhausted. But there's no way I'm going to leave our guys out there. So I gather everyone together. So I asked the guys, you know, I say, look, I said, look, I said, you, you know, know, guys are still, guys are still alive out there. And 
So we're going to go back out and get our guys, make an effort. You don't have to come with us, but I'd like to see a show of hands of those that do want to come with us. And sure enough, everybody raised their hand. One of the things that is so moving about our uh, military fighting men is their unwillingness to leave somebody behind. Unanimously, they're going to go back to get their fellow soldiers. Uh, Laos is a tough situation. Uh, the South Vietnamese folk, uh, soldiers uh, may fight valiantly, but they don't fight well, and the North Vietnamese inflict heavy casualties on them. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger now have to figure out what they're going to do, um, how they're going to answer to this, and uh, you can hear that. I've got a phone call that you're getting ready to listen to. It's Henry Kissinger and President Nixon, and they're discussing uh, the speech that he's about to give and about staying true to the course of Vietnamization and, and turning this war over to South Vietnam and they do realize that, that Laos has been a, a failure, but they're not going to back away. Um, this has been distorted, and some of the language in this conversation, when you use snippets of a phone call, are used to make this other case. And that's why our podcast tries to let you listen to the entire phone call. You're going to hear the entire phone call that exists. Now, there, this phone call was cut off by the taping machine at the very end, but it's about nine minutes. Hello? Dr. Kissinger, sir. Hello? Hello, Henry? Mr. President. Well, since you got back, have you been infected yet with the Washington virus? Not yet, Mr. President. I I think we're on the right course. I've let the speech over, and I think it is very strong now. Yeah, it's a pretty good speech, actually. I think it's an excellent speech. Yeah, it's got a lot of tone. Let me say that I think it's important, I, I told Rose to tell Buchanan that you, and you are the same thing, that both you and Buchanan say you don't know what the hell is going to be in it. Right. Uh, well, I, I, think it's, I, think, I think it's very important to do that for the reason that I that I might change it. And second, I, I just think it's just well to know that you know I because I know that uh, you know we get the usual uh, the usual staff jittering us and the Congress and all the rest yeah. saying to do this and that and the other thing you know and and I understand all that they're they're all you know wobbling around and. And hell, I'm, I'm just not going to let them think they affected me one way or the other. Absolutely. And uh, I, because uh, I, I know <laughs> the point is that they, they, the fellows all they, they, they may think they tell me things I don't know, but I, I'm aware of all these things. I mean, I know them more deeply than they do, you know. But I mean, so it is. Well, John Haley called this evening, yeah. and he had a number of hot ideas. But you know, that is a syndrome of all people who just leave the news field. They want to do it the other way, in the traditional what, way. What is his idea? Just to... Well, he doesn't have a concrete idea. He just wants some sort of smashing announcement that would diff diffuse everything. Well, now, what the hell would we do? You mean like announce we're going to get out tomorrow or end all well, combat? he doesn't have. He, doesn't, he admits he doesn't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Can't be done. And it can't be done. It's I like think... November 3rd. It's just too... I in that respect, it's like November 3rd because basically, I mean... Uh, uh, whether it's, uh, we, we'll listen in later, but the point is that at this point we cannot just uh, do, do something that we know isn't going to, going to, going to, going to wash. So I talked to Garmin and he said he's become totally convinced that, uh, we, uh, if we appeal to the doubts, we'll be destroyed. Huh. 
And he said he read the World Report. He had to give a speech at the Federal City Club. He thinks your foreign policy holds together. And it's got a good philosophical foundation, and we should fight for it. Yeah. And that coming from him, since his instinct you know. the other way, is particularly mm -hmm. interesting, I think. Well, we're not going to go. We'll, we'll play, incidentally. Once we get something to play with, if we get anything from your brain or anything like that, we'll, we'll then go to John and uh, Skelly and... By God, we'll have broker the hell out of it. We gotta do oh, a yeah. better job at then we do it to destroy the doves. But not for the purpose of catering to them. This yeah. idea that you can defuse them is bull. It will not work. I agree and, completely. Uh, I uh, I know, for example, I mean John Ehrlichman, you know, was raising the credibility problem today, you know, on various things and he was doing it, you know, at the best of feelings and I said, Well, John, I said there and, and he wasn't trying to ad advocate a change, but he says there is a problem. Hell, I know there's a problem, but it's it's not what we've done, it's what they've created. That's right. I mean, what the hell have we done that is the only the only stupid thing we did, actually, when you look at Laos, the only stupid thing was that goddamn blackout, which I didn't order. But uh, well, and well, the country that we thought would end within twenty four hours. Yeah. If it had ended within twenty four hours, no one would have paid any attention to it. I know. Well no, Abrams uh in this whole operation has been a disaster. That's yeah. great credit, but he um, he's not been good on that. Well, anyway, the point is that that having happened, we well, it is true that if you read the polls and everything else, there is a credibility and about us. There's they don't believe us. They don't. Uh, there's a lack of confidence in the conduct of the war and so forth. That is no reason to to cave. We just state it out there the best we can and it hope for the best. It is because if we if we if we start you know, simpering around and catering to these bastards. Hell, they, they just eat us alive. And Garment sees that, doesn't he? Absolutely. In fact, and he came to this conclusion entirely by himself, and as you can imagine, against his first instinct. You know. Well, and I would, uh, when you're talking to Martin's staff, because I won't see them, I would take a line where, where you're concerned. Why don't you appear to be a little dovish? I mean, just say, gee whiz, you know, I... Because I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, he's he's done what he's done and did before. He's thinking about it himself. He's going to make his own decision, and I can't predict at all what he's going to do. Absolutely. I'd just keep him guessing, and I and if they wail and going around saying, "Now look, you can wail all you want, but that's he's the guy that's going to do this," and and that I've considered all their views, uh, all the rest. I mean, Schultz and Ehrlichman and you know uh, McGregor and. And Rumsfeld and Finch and all the rest, they don't know a goddamn thing about this. They exactly. don't know what it's about. And they don't know what we'll be hit with if this whole thing comes apart. They don't, they don't know anything about foreign policy. Exactly. They're only concerned about, uh, frankly, peace at any price, really. Because they see what well, all they're concerned about is, well, revenue sharing and the environment and all that crap, which doesn't amount to anything, in my opinion. They want to take off the immediate pressure. This is their overriding concern. Mm-hmm. Well, the immediate pressure isn't all that heavy. And that, I don't believe, can be done. Yeah. I mean, it can't be done their way, because once you accept the premises of McGovern, you are fighting on his ground, and it wouldn't be in character. Oh, that's right. There is one thing, Mr. President, there are two sentences we ought to add. Yeah. Uh, because there's the cynical comment that the dogs are now making, especially McGovern, that we are substituting America, Asian for American yeah. casualties and increasing the bombing, and we can do it in two senses. One, where you speak about reduction in American death, yeah. 
you can say, and South Vietnamese casualties have also dropped by, I think, 50%. I'll get you the exact right. figure. And why don't we say that our, and then put in, and we've reduced our bombing by so much. And the bombing within South Vietnam has been reduced yeah. by 90%, Mr. President. Yeah, and just, well, rather than getting into too many figures, you say that the that we've, we've reduced our bombing by 30% or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just get it, whatever the figure is for Southeast Asia. So I don't have to get into separating South Vietnam from Laos. Well, the significance of the 90% is that in the populated areas, our bombing has decreased by 90%. The area I, Vietnam bombing is the unpopulated area. But I, I know that, but I don't have time to explain that. No, I'll, I'll get you that. All we need is just get some figure that makes the point we've, that is, we've, 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 uh, uh, we, well, we, we, we can at least try to, try to get that across. Right. But, uh, so two sentences is what I would recommend in that place. Right. Right. And also the South Vietnamese casualties. Are that South Vietnamese casualties, I'm getting the exact... Even with Laos? Even with Laos. Well, you even say that, even with the heavy casualties they took in Laos. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course, these goddamn belt things, and it's, it's just one thing. They eat you alive, they take one thing, and then they go after another one. And, uh, hell... I've, uh, I've determined to just see it through and how it and, it's, it's, and if, they, uh, if it fails, it fails. And well, it's a heroic posture, Mr. Well, you know, here we are not. The point is that there's no other course for the country. Yeah. The uh, these people. I mean, um, that's why the uh, why our our domestic side. I mean, while I'm interested in their views, why they're irrelevant. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. That's right. I mean, now on the other hand, too. I must say that they are they are so terribly obsessed with re listening to television, reading all of our critics, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, and of course I must say the Alsop piece probably disturbs them, but they read all that and, and, and they say, well now, just a minute, is this true? I mean, are, have, we, have we overstayed anything? Haven't we really kept our promises? You see, that's the point. I, I constantly get back to the fact that I don't think our own people know that enough how to defend us. That's right. That's well, right. Hmm? They are astonished by some of these things, or by what we've accomplished. I mean, we've kept our promises. We will have taken out several several hundred thousand, two thirds of our. No, but they get the impression, or they read the they read the critics, and they get the impression that damn it, we are lying, and that we are covering up. That there are. <laughs> This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, 
let's get back to the show. my fellow Americans. Over the past several weeks, you have heard a number of reports on TV, radio, and in your newspapers on the situation in Southeast Asia. I think the time has come for me as president and as commander-in-chief of our armed forces to put these reports in perspective, to lay all the pertinent facts before you, and to let you judge for yourselves as to the success or failure of our policy. I'm glad to be able to begin my report tonight by announcing that I have decided to increase the rate of American troop withdrawals for the period from May 1st to December 1st. Before going into details, I would like to review briefly what I found when I came into office, the progress we have made to date in reducing American forces, and the reason why I am able to announce a stepped-up withdrawal without jeopardizing our remaining forces in Vietnam and without endangering our ultimate goal of ending American involvement in a way which will increase the chances for a lasting peace in the Pacific and in the world. When I left Washington in January of 1961, after serving eight years as Vice President under President Eisenhower, there were no American combat forces in Vietnam. No Americans had died in combat in Vietnam. When I returned to Washington as president eight years later, there were 540,000 American troops in Vietnam. 31,000 had died there. 300 Americans were being lost every week. And there was no comprehensive plan to end the United States' involvement in the war. I implemented a plan to train and equip the South Vietnamese to withdraw American forces and to end American involvement in the war just as soon as the South Vietnamese had developed the capacity to defend their country against communist aggression. Now on this chart on my right, you can see how our plan has succeeded. In June of 1969, I announced a withdrawal of 25,000 men. In September, 40,000. December, 50,000. April of 1970, 150,000. By the first of next month, May 1st, we will have brought home more than 265,000 Americans, almost half of the troops in Vietnam, when I took office. Now, another indication of the progress we have made is in reducing American casualties. Casualties were five times as great in the first three months of 1969 as they were in the first three months of this year, 1971. South Vietnamese casualties have also dropped significantly in the past two years. One American dying in combat is one too many. But our goal is no American fighting man dying any place in the world. Every decision I have made in the past and every decision I make in the future will have the purpose of achieving that goal. Now let me review now two decisions I have made which have contributed to the achievements of our goals in Vietnam that you've seen on this chart. The first was the destruction of enemy bases in Cambodia. You will recall that at the time of that decision, many expressed fears that we had widened the war, that our casualties would increase, that our troop withdrawal program would be delayed, 
Now, I don't question the sincerity of those who express these fears, but we can see now they were wrong. American troops were out of Cambodia in 60 days, just as I pledged they would be. American casualties did not rise. They were cut in half. American troop withdrawals were not halted or delayed. They continued at an accelerated pace. Now let us turn to the Laotian operation. As you know, this was undertaken by South Vietnamese ground forces with American air support against North Vietnamese troops, which had been using Laotian territory for six years to attack American forces and allied forces in South Vietnam. Since the completion of that operation, there's been a great deal of understandable speculation, just as there was after Cambodia, whether or not it was a success or a failure, a victory or a defeat. But as in Cambodia, what is important is not the instant analysis of the moment, but what happens in the future. Did the Laotian operation contribute to the goals we sought? I just completed my assessment of that operation, and here are my conclusions. First, the South Vietnamese demonstrated that without American advisors, they could fight effectively against the very best troops North Vietnam could put in the field. Second, the South Vietnamese suffered heavy casualties. But by every conservative estimate, the casualties suffered by the enemy were far heavier. Third, and most important, the disruption of enemy supply lines, the consumption of ammunition and arms in the battle, has been even more damaging to the capability of the North Vietnamese to sustain major offensives in South Vietnam than were the operations in Cambodia 10 months ago. Consequently, tonight, I can report that Vietnamization has succeeded. Because of the increased strength of the South Vietnamese, because of the success of the Cambodian operation, because of the achievements of the South Vietnamese operation in Laos, I am announcing an increase in the rate of American withdrawals. Between May 1 and December 1 of this year, 100,000 more American troops will be brought home from South Vietnam. This will bring the total number of American troops withdrawn from South Vietnam to 365,000. Now that's over two-thirds of the number who were there when I came into office, as you can see from this chart on my left. The government of South Vietnam fully supports the decision I've just announced. Now, let's look at the future. As you can see from the progress we have made to date and by this announcement tonight, the American involvement in Vietnam is coming to an end. The day the South Vietnamese can take over their own defense is in sight. Our goal is a total American withdrawal from Vietnam. We can and we will reach that goal through our program of Vietnamization if necessary. But we would infinitely prefer to reach it even sooner through negotiations. I'm sure most of you will recall that on October 7th of last year in a national TV broadcast, I proposed an immediate ceasefire throughout Indochina, the immediate release of all prisoners of war in the Indochina area, an all Indochina peace conference, the complete withdrawal of all outside forces, and a political settlement. Tonight, I again call on Hanoi to engage in serious negotiations to speed the end of this war. 
I especially call on Hanoi to agree to the immediate and unconditional release of all prisoners of war throughout Indochina. It is time for Hanoi to end the barbaric use of our prisoners as negotiating pawns and to join us in a humane act that will free their men as well as ours. Let me turn now to a proposal which at first glance has a great deal of popular appeal. If our goal is a total withdrawal of all our forces, why don't I announce a date now for ending our involvement? Well, the difficulty in making such an announcement to the American people is that I would also be making that announcement to the enemy. And it would serve the enemy's purpose and not our own. If the United States should announce that we will quit regardless of what the enemy does, we would have thrown away our principal bargaining counter to win the release of American prisoners of war. We would remove the enemy's strongest incentive to end the war sooner by negotiation. And we will have given enemy commanders the exact information they need to marshal their attacks against our remaining forces at their most vulnerable time. The issue very simply is this. Shall we leave Vietnam in a way that by our own actions consciously turns the country over to the communists? Or shall we leave in a way that gives the South Vietnamese a reasonable chance to survive as a free people? My plan will end American involvement in a way that would provide that chance. And the other plan would end it precipitately and give victory to the communists. In a deeper sense, we have the choice of ending our involvement in this war on a note of despair or on a note of hope. I believe, as Thomas Jefferson did, that Americans will always choose hope over despair. We have it in our power to leave Vietnam in a way that offers a brave people a realistic hope of freedom. We have it in our power to prove to our friends in the world that America's sense of responsibility remains the world's greatest single hope of peace. And above all, we have it in our power to close a difficult chapter in American history, not meanly, but nobly, so that each one of us can come out of this searing experience with a measure of pride in our nation, confidence in our own character, and hope for the future of the spirit of America. I know there are those who honestly believe that I should move to end this war without regard to what happens to South Vietnam. This way would abandon our friends, but even more important, we would abandon ourselves. We would plunge from the anguish of war into a nightmare of recrimination. We would lose respect for this nation, respect for one another, respect for ourselves. I understand the deep concerns which have been raised in this country, fanned by reports of brutalities in Vietnam. Let me put this into perspective. I have visited Vietnam many times, and speaking now from that experience and as Commander-in-Chief of our Armed Forces, I feel it is my duty to speak up 
for the two and a half million fine young Americans who have served in Vietnam. The atrocity charges in individual cases should not and cannot be allowed to reflect on their courage and their self-sacrifice. War is a terrible and cruel experience for a nation, and it's particularly terrible and cruel for those who bear the burden of fighting. But never in history have men fought for less selfish motives, not for conquest, not for glory, but only for the right of a people far away to choose the kind of government they want. And while we hear and read much of isolated acts of cruelty, we do not hear enough of the tens of thousands of individual American soldiers. I've seen them there, building schools, roads, hospitals, clinics, who through countless acts of generosity and kindness have tried to help the people of South Vietnam. We can and we should be very proud of these men. They deserve not our scorn, but they deserve our admiration and our deepest appreciation. And the way to express that appreciation is to end America's participation in this conflict, not in failure or in defeat, but in achievement of the great goals for which they fought. A South Vietnam free to determine its own future, and an America no longer divided by war, but united in peace. That is why it is so important how we end this war. By our decision, we will demonstrate the kind of people we are and the kind of country we will become. That's why I've charted the course I have laid out tonight to end this war, but end it in a way that will strengthen trust for America around the world, not undermine it, in a way that will redeem the sacrifices that have been made, not insult them, in a way that will heal this nation, not tear it apart. I can assure you tonight with confidence that American involvement in this war is coming to an end. But can you believe this? I understand why this question is raised by many very honest and sincere people. Because many times in the past, in this long and difficult war, actions have been announced from Washington which were supposed to lead to a reduction of American involvement in Vietnam. And over and over, these actions resulted in more Americans going to Vietnam and more casualties in Vietnam. Tonight, I do not ask you to take what I say on faith. Look at the record. Look again at this chart on my left. Every action taken by this administration, every decision made, has accomplished what I said it would accomplish. They have reduced American involvement. They have drastically reduced our casualties. In my campaign for the presidency, I pledged to end American involvement in this war. I am keeping that pledge. And I expect to be held accountable by the American people if I fail. 
I'm often asked what I would like to accomplish more than anything else while serving as President of the United States. And I always give the same answer, to bring peace, peace abroad, peace at home for America. The reason I am so deeply committed to peace goes far beyond political considerations or my concern about my place in history or the other reasons that political scientists usually say are the motivations of presidents. Every time I talk to a brave wife of an American POW, every time I write a letter to the mother of a boy who has been killed in Vietnam, I become more deeply committed to end this war and to end it in a way that we can build a lasting peace. I think the hardest thing that a president has to do is to present posthumously the nation's highest honor, the Medal of Honor, to mothers or fathers or widows of men who have lost their lives, but in the process have saved the lives of others. We had an award ceremony in the East Room of the White House just a few weeks ago. And at that ceremony, I remember one of the recipients, Mrs. Carl Taylor from Pennsylvania. Her husband was a Marine Sergeant, Sergeant Carl Taylor. He charged an enemy machine gun single-handed and knocked it out. He lost his life. But in the process, the lives of several wounded Marines in the range of that machine gun were saved. After I presented her the medal, I shook hands with their two children, Carl Jr., he was eight years old, and Kevin, who was four. As I was about to move to the next recipient, Kevin suddenly stood at attention and saluted. I found it rather difficult to get my thoughts together for the next presentation. My fellow Americans, I want to end this war in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice of Carl Taylor. And I think he would want me to end it in a way that would increase the chances that Kevin and Carl and all those children like them here and around the world could grow up in a world where none of them would have to die in war. That would increase the chance for America to have what it has not had in this century, a full generation of peace. We've come a long way in the last two years toward that goal. With your continued support, I believe we will achieve that goal. And generations in the future will look back at this difficult, trying time in America's history, and they will be proud that we demonstrated that we had the courage and the character of a great people.
Thank you. Perhaps one of the greatest speeches he ever gave. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.